Well, would you take the Word of God with me and turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts and uh, chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. Before we stand in just a moment for the reading of God's Word, before we do so, I, I would like to remind us uh, Paul's on his second missionary journey. He has been spending, spending some time in Macedonia, and now he is going to Achaia. Uh, Greece had two provinces. The eastern province was the province of Macedonia, and I guess the southwestern province was the province of Achaia. In this particular passage, he's going from Athens to Corinth. Athens was in Macedonia, and uh, Corinth was in Achaia. And um, on this second missionary journey, if you remember, while he was in Macedonia, he went first to Philippi. In Philippi, he had been beaten and imprisoned, falsely accused. They realized then that he was a Roman soldier, that they had made a mistake. But yet they kicked him out of the city of Philippi. Then he went down to uh, Thessalonica. And you remember in Thessalonica, he was there for three Sabbath days. And in Thessalonica, there was an uproar in the city. Uh, they assaulted the house of Jason, who was one of the believers there, and uh, they uh, took Paul, uh, Silas, and Timotheus away. Uh, they came down to Berea, and in Berea, uh, things were going well there, but the Jews in Thessalonica heard that they were in Berea, so they came down to Berea, and they stirred up the people in Berea. So Paul, again, had to leave from Berea, and he goes down to Athens. And in Athens, we saw that he, while uh, Silas and, and Timothy stayed back in Berea, Paul was stirred in the spirit and he preached in Athens. And if you remember in Athens there, he stood on Mars Hill and gave a wonderful message about the Lord Jesus Christ, bringing their attention to uh, Christ, who is the Messiah, not only Christ, God the Creator, but also the work of redemption in Christ. And uh, we see that there are some people who believe there in Athens, and now he's going to Corinth. Now, I want us to think here, because when we come to Corinth, because of the reason of the message this morning, it's been hard. You know, sometimes if we're not careful, we might read through the Acts, and we might think, oh, this was nothing for Paul. You know, the great apostle Paul, the apostle of the Gentiles. It's been a rough journey. Being imprisoned, beaten, falsely accu accused, in Athens, ridiculed. And now we come to Corinth, and Paul is by himself. Uh, I think here, thus far, in the first two missionary journeys, I think it's the first time that Paul is by himself. And I want us to see what God does for Paul at the ministry at Corinth here. Notice, let's stand together, Acts chapter 18. We're going to begin reading in verse 1. And we stand out of reverence for God and His Word. So we're going to read verse 1 down to verse 11. Acts chapter 18, verse 1. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth and found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, lately come from Italy, with his wife Priscilla, because the, that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome and came unto them. And because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought, for their occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. And when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, 
Paul was pressed in the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads, I am clean. From henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. And he departed thence and entered into a city, uh, a certain man's house, house named Justice, one that worshipped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all of his house, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision, Be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace, for I am with thee. And no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God unto them. Let me give you here the general outline of this particular section. When Paul goes to Corinth, he's by himself. But he is going to meet a couple, a family, Aquila and Priscilla. I would call them Paul's companions. And then later on, while he is at Corinth, uh, Silas and Timothy come down from uh, Athens or from Macedonia to Corinth. Those are Paul's co-laborers. And then there is the Lord who comes to Paul and he speaks in a vision. And I would say that's Paul's captain. And so I want to preach this morning as we think about Paul and thus far his rough journey. I want to preach on uh, Paul's companions, his co-laborers, and his captain. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you as we've studied thus far in the book of Acts that the work of the church is clear. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to study this work, that we might seek today in the 21st century to duplicate the same work that's been passed on from generation to generation, the work of the gospel of Christ, the baptism of those who believe, the planting and the establishing of local Bible-believing, Bible-preaching churches. And Lord, it is comforting to know of not only that your work is not only spearheaded by a man who's called of, of God, but we see people who come alongside the man of God and the work of God and who are a great blessing. But most of all, Lord, we thank you that you have made a promise, not only to the Apostle Paul, but to all of us, that you will always be with us until the end of the world. And Lord, help us to rejoice in those promises and to identify the truths in our text that might minister to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Uh, Paul here enters at Corinth alone. He comes from Athens to Corinth. And uh, according to our text in verse 5, he is joined later by Silas and Timotheus. It's evident that they come later. After a time when he was already uh, persuading the Jews in the synagogues, and uh, Corinth, if you think about geographically, Corinth was located about 40 miles west of Athens. Um, as I mentioned early on, there are two main Roman or two main provinces in Greece under Roman control. They are Achaia and Macedonia. Athens was in Macedonia. Corinth was in Achaia. 
When we think about Corinth as a city, there was a lot of great things. In Corinth, there was a great commercial city. Uh, there was a lot of um, uh, athletics and competition there, a lot of entertainment in Corinth, much like Athens would be true. But really, the hallmark of Corinth was not necessarily her commercialism or her athletic competition, but it was the deep immorality that you would find at Corinth. Now, we gain some insight. You, you may look at history and con consult the history books as to what was going on at Corinth. Certainly, that's useful, but God's Word also shows us uh, the, uh, the description of the spirit of Corinth. If you turn with me while you hold your place here in Acts 18, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So later on, when Paul writes to the believers at Corinth, he speaks a little while on their lives as unbelievers before they came to know the Lord. And I want you to see how he describes them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, notice with me verse 9. The Bible says here, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, by the way, just to be clear, that's uh, immorality of every kind. Uh, we're talking about homosexuality and all types of immorality, sexual immorality, was pervasive in Corinth. That's what he's talking about. Notice verse 10, Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Here it is, verse 11, And such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And so it is evident here that the spirit of Corinth was one of deep immorality. All types of uh, immorality and sexual sins was pervasive at Corinth. Even Paul, when he writes to them, he, he says, look, this is your former life and you know what it's like and you should abstain from that because God has called you out of that into His marvelous light. But he describes, if you would, the change that God brought about in their lives. And by the way, isn't it wonderful that God can still save today? Unless we think that uh, God can uh, still save the vilest of offenders, let's just remember that we are part and equal to the vilest of offenders. Let's all remember that. Uh, let's not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. And so I was reading a little bit and um, some historians describe a little bit of the spirit in the city. One uh, historian says the city of ancient times was, uh, no city of ancient times was more profligate, uh, more immoral. Uh, Morgan says that it was, it was proverbial for its debauchery. Men of the time were desiring to describe, uh, were, uh, Corinth was described as being utterly corrupt and people had this saying about Corinth. They would say this, uh, when somebody was just involved in all kinds of immorality and uh, uh, behavior that is ungodly, they would say, they live as, as they do in Corinth. That's how they would speak of Corinth. If you were in Athens and somebody lived in an immoral lifestyle, people said, they, he lives as a Corinthian. Uh, B.H. Carroll says the religion was too vile to discuss publicly. 
No decent tongue could describe what occurred under the name of religion. Um, as we know, much of the Greek gods and Greek mythology, some of those Greek temples were really temples of prostitution. And so deep immorality there. Herschel 4 writes as Sodom and Gomorrah at their worst were no worse than Corinth. And so Paul describes that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the deep immorality that was pervasive in Corinth. And so when Paul here comes to Corinth, there's no doubt going to be a challenge. All the cities that he's gone to so, so thus far, he has met uh, staunch opposition against the gospel of Christ. And yet here in this passage, I, I believe here that there, are, there is a certain emphasis that shows us that there are people that came alongside Paul uh, in his ministry in Corinth that would result in a church being established. And I want us to see if we can identify uh, those who come alongside Paul in this passage and see what the result is of this. And by the way, Aquila and Priscilla are mentioned here. But you remember in Romans chapter 16, if you read through Romans chapter 16, Paul mentions a bunch of names and individuals. And he reminds us that he could not have accomplished the work of God alone. And it's important for us as believers, we live in the 21st century, that the work of God is not going to accomplish by one person. It's going to be accomplished by a group of people who come alongside one another to do the work of God together. And God has uh, raised up a church here to do what? To do His work. And He brings people along so that His work can be done more effectively. And may we desire to see how can I be involved in the work of God. As we look here at our text, I want to consider first of all Paul's companions. And I would say that Paul's companions are first here Aquila and Priscilla. It is here in Corinth that Paul meets these two wonderful uh, people, we could say this wonderful family, who would remain friends and we could say, in a sense, uh, co-laborers for many years to come. Uh, we won't go there for sake of time, but Scripture has actually much to say about Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, they weren't uh, preachers in the sense they weren't church planters or missionaries. They were just a Christian couple. And uh, the Scriptures reveal certain things about them. We know this about them. Now, I'm gonna turn, not going to turn there, but I'll just mention those. First of all, we learn in the Scriptures that Paul, uh, Aquila and Priscilla, they knew the Scriptures and they were gracious to people. We know that about them. Now, later in this chapter, we'll see a little later, uh, you remember when... Um, Notice in verse uh, 19. Uh, of Acts chapter 18. Notice, uh, excuse me, verse 26. So Apollos begins to preach to them. And uh, notice in verse 26. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto, unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. So Apollos evidently was, I think, a mighty preacher. He was a gifted, gifted orator. When people listened to Apollos, they thought, wow, man, he is a great speaker. But as Aquila and Priscilla were there listening to his message, they thought, well, he's, he's not, he's not uh, describing the way of God exactly like it ought to be. And so they took him in. It, it tells us two things. They knew the scriptures and they were gracious people. 
Now, I say those two things because sometimes when we know the Scriptures, we might lose graciousness. We might look at somebody who preaches, who preaches maybe something that we don't agree with, and we just uh, criticize them, and we revolt against them, and we are, uh, develop uh, sentiments that are unpleasing towards that person instead of doing what Aquila and Priscilla did, which they came alongside him, they brought him uh, unto them, and they expounded him the way of God more perfectly, and they helped the man. Uh, that's Aquila and Priscilla. We would learn later in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 that we learned that they opened their home for the meeting of the church. Uh, Paul, when he writes later to the church at Corinth in the first epistle of, of, Cor of Corinthians, he writes about the church being in the house of Aquila and Priscilla. And so they had opened their home to the church meeting. That's a wonderful thing. And we also learn a little later that they were ministers and encouragers to Paul. They had apparently risked their own lives to save the life of Paul. Uh, Paul, he writes to them in Romans chapter 16, and he says this about them. He says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus, who, gave, uh, who, who have for my life laid down their own necks. That means that Aquila and Priscilla, at some point in the ministry of Paul, they were, living, they were willing to give their lives for the life of Paul. What tremendous Christians. Now I want to think here, because that's what we know about them. That's a summary, so it's not a message on Aquila and Priscilla. But it is a message of them coming alongside Paul at just the right time. What a coincidence. No. What providence. We see as we think about the Paul's companions in Aquila and Priscilla, we see in our text, I believe here, the providence of this companionship. If you notice with me in verse 1 and 2, the Bible says, After these things Paul departed from Athens. So here Paul is by himself. There is no indication that anybody is with Paul. Remember, he had been made fun of in Athens. They said he is a babbler. They had uh, made fun of him at the end of his message. The Bible says some mocked. He had been ridiculed in Athens. He is by himself at Corinth. There's probably this sense of loneliness. And then the Bible says, And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome and came unto them. Now, we identify here the name of Claudius. Claudius was the fourth Roman emperor. Uh, he succeeded Caligula in A.D. 41, and he reigned until A.D. 54. In the middle of his reign, history does record that in A.D. 49, he banished the Jews from Rome. And the Bible tells us here, because that Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. Again, just another evidence that the Scriptures is uh, given by inspiration of God. Every historical fact that's been placed alongside the Bible has been found to be true. And the skeptics that criticize that have not studied the Bible alongside history. But history records that during his reign, uh, also that there were several famines. It's interesting because early on in Acts eleven twenty eight, remember, uh, when Agabus, who was a prophet, came, he signified by the Spirit that there should be a dearth throughout the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. And history also records to us that there were famines, several famines during the reign of Claudius Caesar. 
Now it's interesting here because it's in parenthesis for us in verse 2 that Aquila and Priscilla are there. Why? Because they've been kicked out of Rome. Now we might think here at this time that Aquila and Priscilla have been pushed out to where they wanted to live, where they wanted to be. They end up in Corinth, and it is there at Corinth that they meet the Apostle Paul, who is also by himself, who no doubt could have been discouraged from the journey of the, uh, and the rejection and the mockery he had experienced in all of the cities previously. And now God brings Aquila and Priscilla to Paul. And Paul to Aquila and Priscilla. I believe here that God brought them together so that they could be companions. The Bible says here that he, verse 2, he found a certain Jew named Aquila and then Priscilla. The idea of he found them, it's, uh, the idea here is that, you know, have you ever uh, found something uh, that was there for you waiting along all along? Well, that's, I believe, what the Scripture indicates. God had Aquila and Priscilla prepared for Paul. And God had allowed them to be kicked out of Rome to bring them to Corinth so that they could be Paul's companions. What is that? I believe it's the providence of God. I don't think it's coincidence that this would work out because the Scripture tells us how they came about to be in Corinth and how they came to fellowship with Paul. And so we see here the providence of this companionship. But we also see, and by the way, uh, Psalm 76 verse 10 says that surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. You see, Claudius kicked the Jews out of Rome, the wrath of man. But who gets the praise in the end? God, because God worked something out through the wrath of man and brought those together, Paul and Aquila and Priscilla. So we see the providence of this companionship, but we also see the provision of this companionship. Notice verse 3. And because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought, for by their occupation they were tent makers. Now, it is evident here that Paul often resorted to tent making during his ministry. We, we read that. Uh, this would often, he would often do this at the first so that people would not think that he was really using the gospel as a way to make money. And the reason why I say that is because that was uh, very prevalent in those days. People would travel from city to city. They would tell stories and they would often do that to get money from people. And so Paul, he would go to a city, he would begin to preach the gospel, but often he had a job on the side where he would be tent making, and that was his craft or his trade, so that he could make money, so people would not assume that the reason he's doing that is to make money. He provided for his own self. That is not to say that the church shouldn't take care of the man of God. It's just saying that Paul didn't want them to assume that that's what he was doing because he commands them later that those who preach, who live of the gospel, should live by the gospel. But Paul didn't want that, that, that accusation. But we find here that, think about it, not only does God bring Aquila and Priscilla and Paul together at Corinth at the same time, but isn't it remarkable that the same work and field and trade that they had is the same skill that Paul had? And the Bible says, notice in verse 3, because he was of the same craft, he abode with them. So because... Um, because Aquila was of the same craft as Paul, Paul abode with them, Aquila and Priscilla, and wrought. The word wrought means he worked. So it indicates to us, the scripture says, indicates to us not only the providence of God brought them together, 
But then God provided for the financial needs of Paul through the business of Aquila and Priscilla. Paul worked with them while he was there at Corinth. And uh, uh, the the Bible says their occupation was that they were tent makers. And so we see here the providence of this companionship and the provision of this companionship. Once again, God is providing for Paul in a mysterious way. I don't think that if you were in Athens with Paul, Paul would have said, hey, uh, wrote to Timothy, hey, I'm going to move to Corinth. And when I'm in Corinth, I'm going to meet two people and then they're going to give me a job and I'll be able to provide for myself. So don't worry about me. I'm just going to Corinth. He didn't know what was going to happen in Corinth. He followed the Lord's leading and then the Lord provided along the way with the companions and also a provision for a job while he was at Corinth. So we not only see the the, the providence of this companionship, the provision of this companionship, but we also see the power of this companionship. Verse 4 says, And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. Now, I, I believe here that Paul, uh, the scripture lays out for us the timeline that after these things, Paul departed from Athens in verse 1 and came to Corinth and found a certain Jew named Aquila and Priscilla. Now, the idea of found them, I don't think that, uh, I think that some time had expired in Corinth. Uh, before he found them, and then once he found them, he had this companionship, he had this job, and now, proceeding from there, he goes to the synagogue, and he persuades those who are Jews and the Greeks as he's preaching in the synagogue. And so I believe here that this companionship, God provided for Paul these companions, so that to help and to give power to Paul, so that he might serve God, and it's always encouraging when we have people that come alongside us to help us serve God. So we see here, by the way, Paul would mention, as I mentioned early on, in Romans chapter 16, verse 3 and 4, Paul writes about Aquila and Priscilla, and he says this, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus, who gave for my life, uh, who, who, who have for my life laid down their own necks, unto whom not only I give thanks, but also all the church of the Gentiles. And so Paul acknowledges in the sense that the, all the churches have been beneficiaries of the faithfulness and the work of Aquila and Priscilla. But they weren't preachers, that's right. But they were certainly a great help. So we see here not only Paul's companions, Aquila and Priscilla, but then we move in our text and we see Paul's co-laborers, in, as in Silas and Timotheus. Notice verse 5. And when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia... Paul was pressed in the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. So we know that, remember, when Paul was in Berea, when he went down to Athens, uh, Silas and Timotheus stayed back, and he was going to wait for them in Athens. So apparently they came down to Athens at some point, and then Paul went to Corinth. And so that, uh, we believe that that's when he sent uh, Timotheus up to uh, Thessalonica, with a letter for them, and he probably sent Silas back to Berea. The scripture doesn't say that, but that's probably what where he is, uh, while Paul is by himself at Corinth. So while Paul is week after week in the synagogue persuading the Jews and the Greeks, now Silas and Timotheus come, and those, by the way, are Paul's co-laborers. Remember, Silas was from the church of Jerusalem. Uh, Timothy was from the uh, churches of Lystra and Derbe that he had met and he had taken with him. And now they join him. These are his co-laborers. Now, notice what happens. Our text indicates the difference that co-laborers make. 
If you notice in verse 5, the Bible says, and what's the next word? When. The Bible says, and when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Now, important. We see that Paul was, uh, was um, uh, pressed in the Spirit and that he testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. But understand, when did he do that? When Silas and Timotheus came. You see, the Bible indicates to us that Paul was pressed in the Spirit and he testified boldly that Jesus was a Christ not until... Silas and Timotheus came. In verse 4, I, it seems clear to me that in verse 4, every week in the, Sabbath, uh, in the synagogue, Paul was persuading the Jews and the Greeks, but it's not saying in what he was persuading them. I think we know that Paul, remember, before he became a believer in Christ, he was a Pharisee. He was familiar with the Scriptures, and he would no doubt, Sabbath after Sabbath, having the credentials that he had as a Jew he would have the opportunity to speak of the Lord, to speak of the Word, and to give an exhortation. But I do not necessarily believe that he was speaking of Christ as the Messiah yet. I don't believe that. Because the Bible just says he persuaded the Jews and the Greeks, but in verse 5 it tells us that when he was pressed in the Spirit, he testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ as if he had not done that before. But when did that happen? It happened when Silas and Timotheus came along. His co-laborers. So I want us to see here Paul's co-laborers. And I want to note several things about uh, Paul's co-laborers. First of all, we see the constraint. Now, I already mentioned that. But it appears to me that Paul is pressed in the Spirit only once Silas and Timotheus come along. There is a sense here that Paul had been by himself. Now, notice he has this companionship with Aquila and Priscilla. And uh, no doubt that's provided fellowship and comfort for him in Corinth. But thus far, we don't see him testifying that Jesus is the Christ. But now that Silas and Timotheus come, it's almost like those co-laborers provide a certain measure of strength and encouragement and boldness for him. And I think that we have to understand today, when we think about the work of God, that nobody is immune of discouragement. That nobody is immune to get to the place where we uh, may uh, lack boldness, or there, there may be time when uh, there might be hesitation in serving God. But often we, we have co-laborers that come alongside us, and they provide a, a source of strength for us, where in a sense our spirit is revived, and we can become pressed in the spirit to serve God in a greater way. And that's what happens to Paul. Now, I'm saying that because I don't think that that's how we would think of Paul. We wouldn't think of Paul as being discouraged, and we wouldn't think of Paul as being a man who would be timid or who would lack boldness. But the Scripture seems clear that it's only when Silas and Timotheus came that he was pressed in the Spirit and then testified that Jesus was the Christ. And so I want you to understand that there is value not just in the one who is preaching the word, but there is great value in those who come alongside who are co-laborers just to provide the source of encouragement to Paul to just keep preaching Christ. We not only see the constraint of the co-laborers, but we see the clear conscience. Notice here what Paul says after this in verse 6. When they oppose themselves and blaspheme. That means that, it's interesting here, the word oppose themselves as, 
And this is the, the thing about the, the, the gospel and the scriptures. The Jews in the synagogue knew that what Paul was preaching was the truth. But they refused to accept the truth. And I believe we, there is the same aspect in the world. I don't think that it's necessarily that everybody just doesn't know the truth. There is a sense that people can know the truth, but yet they oppose themselves. They know the truth, but they don't want to accept the truth. And so here he says, you're opposing yourselves. You know the truth, but you oppose the truth. You're, you're, you're doing harm to yourself. And they blasphemed. And he shook his raiment. That's a, a, an act of indignation at them. He said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. And notice what he says, I am clean. Now, now what, is, what is that? Well, I believe Paul is saying is, I have a clear conscience. I have a clear conscience. I have preached to you Christ. I've testified to you. Uh, before then, I remember I persuaded you. you. You knew my credentials in the exposition of the Old Testament. And then when I presented you Christ and presented you and testified to you that Jesus was the Christ, you've opposed yourself. And I want you to know that your blood is on your own hand. I've delivered you to the truth and my conscience is clear. Now I wonder if we can say the same. As we think about the work of God and speaking of Christ and testifying of Christ, can we say, I am clean. I have done my part. I have testified. I have been a witness. And, uh, uh, and so we see here that clearly says, he says, I am clean. From henceforth I will go to, unto the Gentiles. Uh, Paul would often do this. We know he would first go to the Jews. Now in the synagogue you would have the Jews who would typically sit in the synagogue. And on the outside of the synagogue you would have often the Gentiles or proselytes. Those who were Greeks and Gentiles. But who, if you would, accepted some form of Judaism and wanted to become Jews, but they were often outside of the synagogue. And he says, look, I'm now turning to those who are outside uh, who are listening to me. And the point here is that Paul's co-labors came along and there was a sense that it constrained him, but they helped him to have a clear conscience. I am clean. You know, I think that there is a great benefit of those who come alongside and who minister with us for the work of the Lord because... They help us to have a clear conscience before God. Right? There's a sense that if we're by ourselves, we, we might not do the things that we should do. But when somebody comes alongside, it's a source of strength. You know, I, I wonder why Jesus would tell His disciples in, in the Gospels that um, He would send them two by two. Why would He send them two by two? Well, He knows that one person themselves may become discouraged. But if you have a partner that's there, someone who's there, who not only helps, who encourages, who ministers, who fellowship, who has uh, that companionship, it is a great source of, and it helps us to have a clear conscience. It helps us and drives us to our responsibilities and to fulfill our responsibilities. But we also see the converse, not only the constraint, the clear conscience, but also the converse in verse 7 and 8. He departed thence and entered into a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshiped God whose house joined hard to the synagogue. So evidently Justice was a Gentile the Bible says, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. So evidently Justice as a Gentile, he was interested in Judaism. He was interested in the truth of Jehovah God and what the scriptures declared. And he joined hard, in other words, joined hard to the synagogue. He was faithful to that synagogue. Him and his family, they went there week after week after week after week. And somewhere along the line, 
He heard Paul's preaching and he believed Jesus Christ. It's not only justice, but it's also, verse 8, Crispus. Now this is interesting because the Bible says, And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all of his house, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. So there are many Corinthians that God saved, but there are two prominent ones. A very dedicated Gentile who followed hard after the synagogue with all of his house. Very dedicated to God. They worshiped God sincerely. And when they heard the preaching of Christ, they knew it was the truth and they accepted the truth. But then also, the chief ruler of the synagogue. That's a shock. That would be a shock to the, the, the Jews who have not been listening. But here the Bible says, but Crispus, who was the chief ruler of the synagogue, uh, you could say maybe the chief rabbi in the synagogue. Believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to see, this is all connected to Paul's co-laborers, because Paul did not testify to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ until he was pressed in the Spirit. And he was impressed in the Spirit until his co-laborers came. And then there was a, a harvest of souls who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see Paul's companions, Paul's co-laborers, but lastly we see Paul's captain. Perhaps the greatest partner of all. Notice verse 9. Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision. Be not afraid, but speak and hold not thy peace. For I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee. For I have much people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Now I want you to see here, because God by His providence brings along uh, Aquila and Priscilla for a companionship. The providence of God. To provide, in a sense, for him financially. And then he, uh, Silas and Timotheus come to Corinth and they join, join Paul. Uh, and so the, the first one is really, the companionship is for physical provision, encouragement. But Silas and Timotheus come for spiritual encouragement and strength because he was pressed in the Spirit when they came. But then there is the greatest one of all. And that is when the Lord speaks. Lodora comes to Paul and the Lord speaks to Paul. It seems that the timing of this would indicate that this is what Paul needs at this moment. You know, we have to be aware that God will give us what we need when we need it. God will give us what we need when we need it. Sometimes we might think, we might be of the mindset, well, what if this happens in my life? And what if this happens in my life? I wonder how I'm going to respond. I wonder if the Lord's going to be there. You don't have to worry about that. God will be there. And so we don't have to worry about what that looks like in the future because when we need it, God will be there without fail. He will always be there. I want you to notice here, so we see Paul's, not only his companions, his co-laborers, but we see Paul's captain, the Lord. The first thing we see is the Lord's communication. The Bible says, Then spake the Lord to Paul in a, night vision, in a vision by night, in the night by a vision. Now we know that there is no need for visions today. We have the completed Word of God. God speaks to us through His Word. God did so to that then because there was no completed uh, 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 record of what God wants to speak to us about. And so here, God yet speaks to Paul in the, in the night by a vision. Isn't it wonderful that God wants to communicate to us and that God wants to speak to us? 
That's a wonderful privilege. It's a wonderful thing to know that God wants to, to, to speak to us and to, to minister to us. We see the Lord's communication. We also see the Lord's command. What does He say to Paul? He says, Be not afraid. Now, would, would you venture to say that because the Lord says to Paul, be not afraid, do you venture to say that Paul was afraid? Oh, that's not what I think Paul was like. Well, God is speaking. And God says to Paul, be not afraid. May I remind you, in Macedonia, he had been imprisoned and beaten. May I remind you in Thessalonica, there was an uproar in the city. He'd be driven out of the city. May I remind you in Berea, there was an uproar in the city. He had been driven out. May I remind you in Athens, he had been mocked and ridiculed. He finally left to Corinth. May I remind you in the first missionary journey when he was in Lystra and Derby and Iconium, he was uh, driven out of the city, stoned and left for dead. Do you think the man is not afraid? I, I think he is afraid. But God gives a command. He comes to Paul in this moment. Why? Because now there starts to be people who believe. It seems that when we study the scriptures that the revolt and the disruption in the city and the uproar and the opposition of Paul would come when people would believe. And thus far nobody has believed. But now we have two prominent people. Uh, one who is the chief ruler in the synagogue and Justice who is a notable Gentile. They both have believed and their household. They've been baptized. Other Corinthians. And so Paul probably senses what's always happened in the city is that there's about to be an uproar. And I'm afraid. Now scripture doesn't say that Paul was afraid. But God says, he gives him a command. Paul, don't be afraid. You know, I don't think it is logical for us just to say, well, just don't be afraid. But I do think it is appropriate for us to say, when the Lord says, don't be afraid, that we would find comfort and strength and peace in what the Lord says. You know, we're, we're human beings, we're fleshly beings, and so there are times of fear. There are times of anxiety, there are times of uncertainty. I don't think we should seek to avoid those times. I just think that when those times come, we should seek the Lord and to hear from the Lord. And it is in that time that God comes to Paul and says, Paul, be not afraid. Here's a command for you. Don't be afraid. Again, he doesn't say to Paul, don't be afraid. And because you shouldn't be afraid because you're strong and you can overcome them. No, he says, don't be afraid because I am here. You see the... The, 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 the peace would not come because Paul uh, uh, seeks to, uh, uh, in the sense, muster up that peace inside of him. His peace would come from God who is outside of him. And so we see the Lord's communication, the Lord's command, but then we see the Lord's commission. So what does he say? He said, don't be afraid. But then he says this to Paul. He said, but, but speak and hold not thy peace. Now, I, I think, now this is just me, I, I understand that I may be wrong, but I do believe that Paul might get to the place where he begins now to be afraid, and he thinks to himself, well, maybe I should back off. Maybe I should stop speaking. Maybe I should hold my peace and wait until things settle down a little while. And God says, don't do that. Don't do that, Paul. Don't be afraid, but speak. Have you ever been afraid to speak of the Lord? 
Now, not, not, not to speak of the Lord, but afraid of the response or the reaction because you are going to speak for the Lord? That's a, um, that's a human happening. It's going to happen. And here the Lord says, speak, don't hold your peace. That's the Lord's commission. But then we see the Lord's comfort. So he speaks, he says, don't be afraid, speak, don't hold your peace. Verse 10, why does God say, do this, Paul? And he says, for here's the reason why you, Paul, should not be afraid. Here's the reason, Paul, why you should speak. Here's the reason why you should not hold your peace, Paul. Here's the reason. I'm with thee. I'm with thee. That's the Lord's comfort. The Lord's comfort. I'm, I don't think that we should be seeking for an, an immunity against fear, that we might not never be afraid again. I don't think necessarily that we should just uh, uh, speak our minds all the time and just, just do it because we're supposed to do it. I think we should find... Uh, uh, solace and comfort in the Lord because He is with us. And that is the basis why we should not be afraid. And that is the basis why we should speak because the Lord is ever present with us. And it is strength that is not found in self and in self-confidence and in self-assurance. It's a confidence that's found in the Lord who is outside of us. And we say, because God is with us, therefore I will not be afraid. Because God is with us, therefore I will not be silent. But I will speak and I will not hold my peace because God is with me. And so uh, that's what God says. The greatest promise for the Christian is the promise of the presence of God. You see, peace in our lives is not the absence of fear. Peace in our lives is the presence of Christ. That's important. Peace is not the absence of fear. Peace is the presence of Christ. What Paul should be seeking here is not for the absence of fear, but the Lord says, I'm here with you. And because I'm with you, you can be at peace. But then we see, lastly, the Lord's commitment. Notice what He says, I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. <laughs> Here's the Lord's commitment to Paul. Paul, nobody's going to hurt you. Now, I want us to be reminded that Jesus Christ gave a promise that in the world ye shall have tribulation. Uh, he says uh, offenses will come. It is impossible, but that offenses might come, will come. And um, the Bible says, blessed are they, Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus speaks to his disciples, blessed are they that are persecuted for righteousness sake. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward. So there is persecution, there is affliction, and there is opposition. But in this case, God says, nobody's going to touch you, Paul. Why? Because God told him, now, 
God told that to Paul. Was that always true? No, we already saw when he was in Lystra, he was stoned left for dead. It's not always true. But it's true in this city. Why? Well, because God is omniscient. And He knows. And God would uh, uh, keep uh, those who would oppose Him at bay from physically hurting Paul. And God gives the reason, He says, For I have much people in the city. There are many people God is seeing in His uh, omniscience, those who would believe. He said, There's a great number of people who are going to believe in this city. So, Paul, don't be quiet. Preach the word. Preach Christ. Don't be afraid. But speak because I am with you. And notice verse 11. He continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. As far as I know, it's the longest place that Paul has been. His ministry. The Bible says he was there a year and six months. Now, you could debate that he was in Antioch, the ascending church, for longer. Um... So uh, I think it was uh, three years, I think it was there, but from the time he became a missionary and went from city to city, I believe that thus far in the first two missionaries, that's the city where he spent the longest time. And uh, we see here that the work of God was great. He, the Bible says at the end, teaching the word of God among them. So Paul did what God wanted him to do. He faithfully taught the word of God. The point I want to make here, and, and, and we're done, is that, uh, do you see all the elements here of the work in Corinth? Church was established. People were saved. Wonderful things. But God, by His providence, brought along some companions for Paul. So that he would be provided for financially. And have that fellowship. Then God brings along Silas and, and Timotheus to, if you would, strengthen the hand of Paul to preach and to testify of Christ. The result of that is that people believed and then thirdly, God comes alongside Paul and provide the source of comfort and, and peace internally. So I want us to think about those elements. The first one is that God took care of Paul in his physical needs with Aquila and Priscilla. God then took care of Paul in his ministry need because when, Paul, uh, when Silas and Timotheus came, he was able to preach boldly and testify of Christ. Before it seemed that he was not doing that. But then God provided for Paul spiritually internally. Where Paul was specifically ministered unto by God himself. And I want us to think that we should find our place in all of that. Now we're not the Lord. But maybe we can be like Aquila and Priscilla. Now, we're not the Lord, but maybe we could be like Silas and Timotheus. And find our place in the work of God for the advancement of the gospel. And so the question I have for you is, where, where is your place? Where is your place? God will always do His part. But will we do ours for the work of the, God, for the, work of the gospel and the work of God in His ministry?